All right, happy birthday, First Christian Church. Woo! What a great day. God has done it. I just tell you right now, I am overwhelmed with gratitude. I just feel like the last couple of weeks as we've been building to this, just, just thanksgiving has just been pouring out of my soul. It's just my whole being, my whole posture today is gratitude. I feel like the psalmist, Psalm 118, he says, Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die, but live. I will proclaim what the Lord has done. That's what we've been doing all day and all year. Proclaim what the Lord has done. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Some of you, we talk about the history of FCC, and you know the whole story. All 150 years, you've read the history, studied the books, heard the story. You know the whole thing. Some of you know part of the story. Maybe the last 40 years or 50 years. You know it not because you studied it, because you lived it. You were there. You, you've got stories to tell and stories to add. Some of you know the story for the last month. Some of you, the only part of the story you know is the part you've heard right here today, just in the last 40 minutes or so. That's the only part of the story you know. But here's the thing. However much of the story you know, whether it's the 40 minutes you just heard or the 50 years you lived or the 150 years you've studied, however much of the story you know, it is a story of God's faithfulness. We just got to be super clear. The accomplishments we celebrate today are not our accomplishments. They are God's accomplishments through us. Maybe this could be your prayer. Look at this verse. I love this verse. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. I love that verse. We just get to, to look at it, right? We just get to look at what God has done and just be amazed. Maybe, maybe, maybe just try, try putting that on your lips. Say that with me. Just, just to put it on your lips and in your heart. Say that with me. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. One more time. That, was, that sounded good. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. I can't believe that we are lucky enough to get to sit here and celebrate 150 years of God's faithfulness. And that is my whole posture today. Like my whole heart today is just a heart of gratitude. But my task today is a little different. Uh, my task is to tell a story. To tell the story of the church. And to tell the story of this to tell the great big story of God's church throughout the ages, founded on Pentecost and never ending till Christ's return, but also to tell the little story of this church, started in a living room, 15 people, four families. And you can't tell either one of those stories without telling the story 
of missionaries. Because the story of the church is the story of a missionary people. The Bible records the story of the church in the book of Acts. And right there in the very first chapter, Jesus gives his followers a mission. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. That's how the story of the church starts. When Jesus sent his followers on a mission. And that story has never changed. The story of God's church is always the story of a sent people. I'm not saying we don't sometimes forget. I'm just saying it doesn't change. The story of God's church is always the story of a sent people. Sent to places or sent to the very place where they already are. I I think about the story in Acts 13. When five leaders from the church of Antioch gathered together to pray and ask God what God was asking of them. And the wisdom of God was clear to them that two of the five needed to be sent out. Paul and Barnabas sent out on mission. They sort of got famous. You might have heard of them. But three of the five, the three whose names you've forgotten, they were sent just as much. Sent back. Sent back to Antioch to keep doing the work of the gospel in the place where God sent them. That story of being a missionary people is the story of the church. And it's also the story of this church. We celebrate that first Sunday, November 12th, 1871. That's the big date to keep in your head. November 12th, 1871. That's the day we celebrate. But that's not when the story of the church started. The story of the church started when word got around that God needed some missionaries in Johnson City. One of them already lived there. One lived over in Carter County. He was a dirt farmer south of Milligan. One lived in Boone's Creek. And one had just moved, and I can't figure out where he'd come from, but he'd just moved to town. The story started before November 12, 1871. The story started when those four families figured out they were missionaries. And they said, we have been sent to this place. We will go to this place. And never for one single minute has that stopped being the story of this church. Oh, again, I know we forget on occasion. But whenever we forget, the Spirit of God comes and reminds God's people. I could tell you story after story after story of when God awakened this church to its call as a missionary people. We talked a lot about one of the great moments, 1921. new preacher named Will Sweeney came in and he proposed, he made a proposal to First Christian Church. He said, we're going to organize to evangelize. Will Sweeney loved rhyme. I've read hundreds of his sermons. He loved rhyming. He said, we're going to organize to evangelize. That's what he told them in 1921. And in 1922, they did it. They remembered they were a sent people, and they started planting churches like crazy in 1922. They planted eight churches in the next five years, and then they just kept planting more and more and more and more churches, starting then in 1922. And for almost every one of those plants, they kicked some people out of the church. Oh, no, that's not how they did it. 
Some people in our church stood up and said, we'll go. First, some people said, we'll go to second Christian church over on the east side of town. We'll go to third Christian church over on the west side of town. We'll go to fourth Christian church on the south side of town. We'll go to first Christian in Greenville, and we'll move to Morristown, and we'll move to Kingsport. We just sent people and sent people and sent people to launch movements. Why did we do that? Because the story of the church is always the story of missionaries, and that has never changed. It's what happened in 1971 when we moved north and built a new building, bought a piece of land where the mall would one day be, and now is. Why did we do that? It was tough. It was expensive. It was uncomfortable. There was significant disagreement in the church. Let's not pretend that that was all easy, and everybody was like, this is a wonderful idea. No. Some people were concerned. Why did we do it? Because we were missionaries, and we saw a region of the town that was growing where there were not enough churches, and so we went it's the story of our present day. Sending more missionaries locally and globally right now than we ever have before. Planting more churches at a faster rate right now than we have since the 1920s. We aren't quite keeping up with Will Sweeney. We've got to pick up the pace, but we're close. Six churches in the last five years. We are a missionary people, and that is always the story of the church. And I look at that story, and I don't know what else to say. But the Lord has done it. And it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the story of the church. It's the story of this church. The story of the church, the story of this church, is always the story of servants as well. It's always the story of servants. This was Jesus' great commandment. Love God. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus taught his followers, love your enemy and pray for the one who persecutes you. How did Jesus put it? In John 13, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You'll look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. So I give you this new command. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. This is how they'll know you're my disciples. If you love one another. The story of the church is always a story of loving service because that's the only way we, they can tell we belong to Jesus. When the story of a church is anything other than a story of love, anything other than a story of service, they can't even tell we belong to Jesus. They can't even figure out who we are. Jesus says that's how they'll know. The Gospel of Matthew records a parable of Jesus. He reminds us of the blessing that comes when we meet the world in love. He says, the king will then say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer. Lord, when did we do any of that? <laughs> when did we see you hungry and feed you? 
or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we ever see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and close you? We don't remember any of that, Jesus. When did we see you sick or in prison? Go visit you. And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did for me. The story of the church is always a story of service because that's what love looks like when it's put into action and that's how people know we even belong to Jesus. And you look at the history of the church and it was on the strength of her service that God's church grew. One of the most amazing evidences we have for this is one of my favorite documents in all of church history was a letter written by a pagan emperor named Julian in around the year 362. In 362, he wrote a letter to one of his Roman priests concerned about the growth of Christianity, and he knew they must do something to stop this new religion that was just exploding on the scene. And he lamented, he said, our worship services are so much better. Our musicians are so much better. Our preaching is so much better. Our, our sanctuaries are so much better. There's only one thing we're going to have to do if we're going to be able to stop these Christians. You must command people to love others. Because that's where we can't match them. Those Christians take care of not just their own poor. They take care of everybody's poor. Those Christians love not just their own kind, they love everyone. And until we love like they do, he says, we won't be able to stop the growth of this new Christian religion. And he was right. How did the church explode on the back of God's spirit-empowered service? That's how. They outlove the world, and people saw it. And they wanted to meet their Savior. And when the time came in God's providence to turn the story of the church into the story of this church, the same thing happened here. There is simply no sufficient way Although we've tried some today with some of these interviews and stuff, but there is no sufficient way to chronicle how FCC has been a force of love to the people around us for the last 150 years. We could not count all the dollars or all the meals or all the beds or all the hours. There, we, we, there's no way we can do it in schools and on street corners, to the hungry and the homeless, in the halls of power and in the forgotten alleyways of our city, we have shown up to love. Because that's the only way they'll know we serve Jesus, is if we show up to love like him. We, we put shirts, uh, we wear shirts that say for everyone. Not because everybody likes us. We know they don't. We get that. You know, that's fine. But because our God loves everyone. And because our God loves everyone, we love everyone. I look back on this legacy of love from this church, and all I can do is say thank you. Thank you, God, for motivating generations, including the generation that sits here gathered together today. Thank you, God, for motivating generations to love in your name so that we could be identified as those who serve and honor Jesus. The Lord has done this. And it is marvelous in our eyes. That is my whole posture today. A posture of gratitude 
But my job, of course, is to tell a story. A story of missionaries, a story of servants, and a story of disciples. Because the story of the church from the very beginning and the story of this church is a story of discipleship. We might not all know that word. It's, it's not that complicated a word. It sounds fancy. It's not. It's just someone who decides to follow Jesus and then decides to help others follow Jesus too. That's the whole thing. Someone says, I'm going to try and follow Jesus. And as much as I'm able, I'll try to help some other people follow Jesus too. That was Jesus' marching orders. We call it the Great Commission. Jesus came to his disciples after he has risen from the dead. He gathers them back together before he goes to be with the Father. And he says to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Those are some pretty good bookends, right? He starts by announcing, I have all the authority in heaven and earth. And he ends by declaring, I will never leave your side. And in the middle, he says, go make disciples. Baptize them and teach them to obey all that I've commanded. This is the story of the church. One generation after another, accepting the call of discipleship and the challenge of disciple-making. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, You imitate me as I imitate Christ. Those are scary words to say, aren't they? But it's what every single one of us who follow Jesus is called to say. You imitate me as I imitate Christ. I dedicate my life to being the disciple, and I turn my life to help make disciples. Paul writes to the young church leader, Timothy. He says, all the stuff that I taught you, you teach to people who will teach it to people. And then for 2,000 years, they taught people who 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 taught people. This goes on for a while until eventually 15 people got taught how to follow Jesus. Four families. And they came to Johnson City and they said, we're going to do that right here. And, and we have the records to prove. 150 years, an unbroken chain of discipleship here in our place. We think about those early days when all the discipleship happened in a living room. Uh, we know what they did together. Uh, the records tell us each week they would come, they would sing a hymn, read a single chapter from the book of Acts, talk about it for a little while, share communion together, and then go have lunch. That, that's what they did. Fifteen people. They did that for, for, for years, actually. For three or four years. That was their whole rhythm. They must have really known the book of Acts well at the end of those four years. That's what they did for four years. And then in um, 1879, we built our first building. December 1st, we moved in. And that was the day we launched a brand new discipleship strategy. We were cutting edge in 1879. It was this thing called Sunday School. What you would do is you would come an hour early, and you'd have a little Bible study class, and then you'd go to worship afterwards. That's what we did. We were pretty cool back in the 1870s. That was our big idea. 
And it was amazing. It exploded. Why did it explode? Because the story of the church is a story of discipleship. And, and, and all these people stood up and said, okay, I don't know much, but everything I know, I'll pour into somebody else. And we had classes for little kids and bigger kids and adults of all ages. and all. Our Sunday school, I, I'll be honest, when I first started studying our history, I had a, I had a moment of concern. I, I, I'll be honest, I had some conversations with some people. I was concerned that somebody had cooked the books. I'm just going to be frank. That's what I thought had happened. Because you look at some of our early documents, especially in the 1900s, the 1910s, the 1920s, and it talks about our attendance numbers. And it would say, you know, 1925, uh, 1,150 people in attendance. That's amazing. Except the problem is, I know the building we were in in 1925. It sat about 150. And so I'm looking at this number and I'm like, what do you, come on, what do you mean 1,150? There were not 1,150 people in attendance. But by the, by the early 1930s, 2,087 people was our highest recorded attendance in the 30s. Again, I've been in the building we were in in the 30s. It sat 85 tops, and they had two services. It took me a while to chase it down. The attendance we we recorded in the 1900s, 1910s, 1920s, and 1930s was not our worship attendance. We recorded our Sunday school attendance. And for most of those decades, our Sunday school attendance was 10 to 15 times our worship attendance. That's amazing. I don't even know what to do with that. I've never heard of such a thing. Why was that? Well, because the story of the church is a story of discipleship. And everybody knew it. And since then, we've tried dozens more things. We've, we've since Sunday school, we've done small groups and accountability groups and recovery groups and care groups and men's ministry and women's ministry and Spanish ministry, college ministry and children's ministry and student ministry. And all kinds of things. Why? Because we had a mission, a mission we did not invent, but a mission we received from Jesus to make disciples, to make more disciples through baptism, to make better disciples by teaching them to obey all that Jesus had commanded, a mission to raise our children in the faith and to raise other people's children in the faith, to welcome new followers and teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded. And, and you know, this mission, I tell you, this is still our heart. Last year, in the middle of the pandemic, last year, we launched more new groups last year than ever in the history of our church. Even back then in the 20s and 30s when we had 2,000 people in groups and 200 in worship. More groups launched last year than ever in our history of the church. Why was that? Why in the middle of a pandemic did we invest so much in launching new groups? Because the story of the church is a story of discipleship. It always has been. And it still is today. And I look on this story, and all I can be is grateful. The Lord has done this. Oh, we can name the great heroes of the faith who stepped up at the Lord's command, but the work was done by God. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. My posture today is just gratitude. I just want to stand here and say thank you. But my task is to tell a story. And the story of the church is worship. This was Christ's first and greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart 
and soul and mind and strength. And that is expressed in every aspect of our life. And when we live as an expression of love to God, that is worship. The church exploded out of worship. The, the, very, the very day of Pentecost emerged when they were gathered together for a prayer meeting in worship to God. And the Spirit of God drove them out of the gathering into the city streets proclaiming the gospel. And when people responded to the gospel, what did they do again? They regathered for worship. In those early days, we see throughout the book of Acts, they never stop worshiping in temple courts and house to house, by the riverside and at the place of prayer, in an imperial prison, in a ship, in a storm. Paul and Silas in jail for a crime they did not commit. What do they do? Worship. Because the story of the church is always a story of worship. And that is the story of this church. I mean, as I, like I said, the story of our church really starts when those four families, 15 people, decided to be missionaries. But the day we mark, November 12, 1871, is when they first gathered to worship. That's the day we mark, is when they became a worshiping community, studying God's word, worship, singing the psalms, breaking the bread, sharing in fellowship. And for 150 years, we have been a people of worship. It's interesting, when you look at the, the timeline of a church history, not just our church history, any church's history, when you look at a timeline, after a while, the timeline just sort of becomes a list of buildings. It's a little discouraging, but that's what happens. You know, 1879, we went into our first building. 1905, it burned down. Late 1905, the ladies held, sold a cookbook, bought enough money for a new land. We built a new building. 1906, we entered the new building. They added on to it in the 30s, in the 50s, in the 70s, we moved. They added on to that in the 90s. It just sort of becomes a story of buildings. Why is that? It's not because we're in the construction business nor the real estate business. It's because we're in the worship business. And every one of those buildings was a place that we dedicated to the purpose of the worship of the people of God. And we've worshiped all over the place in our 150 years. We've worshiped in a living room, in a single home, in what's now the tree street. We worshiped in a rented room in the original Science Hill Male and Female Institute. We worshiped in a little building down on the 100 block of Main Street. When it burned down, we moved two blocks up the road. We worshiped in a slightly bigger building on the 300 block of Main Street. In between, we worshiped in a condemned opera house, the old Job Opera House, soon to be torn down, but they would let us worship in it. When they finally decided that it was not safe to worship anymore, we got a tent. On the corner of Roan and Main, it was then an abandoned lot before they put the department store in, which now doesn't exist anymore. It was a long time ago. We built a tent there. You can read about the tent. The tent leaked. Leaked something awful, so they would bring pots and pans from home to catch the drips of the leak. The history books say that when it would rain, the noise from the roof and the pots was so loud. You couldn't hear the preacher preach. You couldn't hear people pray. You couldn't hear people read scripture. There was one thing you could hear when everybody in the room 
started to sing. When everybody in the room raised their voice to worship God. I read that story, I'll tell you, it reminded me of our year last year. We had a worship night like that. Some of you were there up in our pavilion. The skies just opened up and poured down. I'd written a killer sermon that I couldn't preach. We had a ton of great stuff, but all we could still do was just sing songs of praise. I think about this last year. We've worshiped online, in person, spread out, outside, in the rain, in our cars, masked, unmasked, freezing cold, excessively hot, in pews and chairs and benches, here in a basketball arena. We've even worshiped in couches on our home and our PJs. Why go to all that trouble? Why reinvent the wheel every three weeks? Because the story of the church is a story of worship. We've had organists and violinists and pianists and drummers and guitar players and tambourines, choirs and concerts and recitals and pageants and plays and hymn sings. Along the way, we've added a stage and then a pulpit and then screens and then a sound system. All for one singular reason. Because our God is worthy of worship. And the story of the church is a story of worship. And for us, for 150 years, since that very first gathering, November 12, 1871, the one center, unchanging part of our worship has been the meal of communion. Uh, we're going to take it together in just a minute. If you did not get communion elements on the way in, this is a good time. Wave your hand. Somebody will bring those to you. A lot has changed in our worship. Uh, we didn't worship like this at our 100th anniversary, I can tell you that much. A lot has changed. But this meal hasn't changed. It's the most consistent thing about our worship. Whether we're gathering in a family home or gathering on a basketball court, this meal of remembrance and proclamation we share every single week around here it's the tangible reminder that God has made a way for all people and all things to be reconciled, healed, restored, rescued. Uh, the Bible in Corinthians teaches us the meaning of this meal. Paul writes to the church, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This meal is the heart of our worship because it proclaims the heart of the gospel. That Jesus Christ has established in his death a new covenant. A covenant now of grace. A promise of grace to all who trust in him and call on his name. If you're a follower of Christ with us today, we would invite you to share in this meal. I'm going to pray for us all and then at my instruction we'll take the bread and drink from the cup together. Let's pray. God, of all the things we are grateful for today, of all the gratitude we have to give today,
sacrifice he made so that we might live. We share this meal now in remembrance of him and in proclamation of this good news to the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, if you will, let's take the bread together. This is the body of Christ broken for you. He gave his life so that we might live. Let us share a cup together. Christ shed his blood so that a covenant, a promise of grace might be established for everyone who trusts in Christ. Let's share the cup together. I look on his gratitude. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. That's my posture, a posture of gratitude. Gratitude to Jesus, because he has made the impossible possible. Because of Jesus, we can be forgiven and reconciled to God, made part of God's family and part of God's church. I am overwhelmed with gratitude to God for God's faithfulness to the church and to this church. All that has been done here has been done by God and for God's glory. And I have a posture of gratitude today, just overwhelming gratitude for the legacy of saints who have gone before. My posture is a posture of gratitude. But my job is to make sure you know the story. A story of people who heard the call of Jesus on their life. Who heard Jesus say, follow me. And they did. A story of missionaries who knew that they were sent who never got tired, who never grew weary bringing the gospel to our city up until this very day. A story of disciples who never took a break from passing on what they had learned and from resubmitting themselves to following Jesus. A story of servants who knew they were loved by God and so they decided to love everyone. And a story of worshipers who, no matter the circumstance, a living room, a sanctuary, a basketball arena, gave God glory. That's the story God has written among us. That is the story God is writing. And it's the story God will write. Because when Jesus says, follow me, we're here today to say yes. Let's do it. Let's make some disciples. Let's love God. Let's love everyone. Let's tell the story. Who can we serve? Who can we disciple? You know, I was thinking about a story that lasts 150 years. If you've got a story that lasts 150 years, you know it has to involve Lots of different characters. 
Nobody is going to make it through the whole story, not if it lasts that long. The story of a church can only last 150 years if each generation passes on what it has to the next. And if each generation hears the call of Christ and steps into the gap left by those who went before. A story of a church only lasts 150 years, not just if the first 15 people, but if the 15 after that, and the 15 after that, and the 15 after that, and the hundreds after that, and the thousands after that, stand up and say, we too, in our place, know that we're missionaries. We know we're disciple makers. We know we are servants. We know we are worshipers. And that is what's happened here. Again, some of you, like me, have gone back and read the history, and some of you would have to take my word for it. But you can't read very long until you've got a whole new cast of characters. Because new leaders, new servants, new worshipers have stepped up to carry the mission of God's church forward. And I just want to be super clear. Right now, it's your turn. We stand on the shoulders of giants. We stand on their legacy of service, their legacy of generosity, their legacy of mission, their legacy of worship. And I just want to know who's going to stand on your shoulders. And will they stand taller and see farther because of your faithfulness in this moment? We've talked a lot about the first 150 years of this church. But I don't know if you've been doing the math, but the first 150 years of this church ended Friday. We're not even in the first 150 years of this church anymore. The second 150 years of this church started two days ago. That's where we are today. We are in the second 150 years of this church. We're already two days in. So who's going to worship God today? Who's going to make a disciple tomorrow morning? Who's going to love somebody in Jesus' name, not because they like him or because they feel like it or because they want to, just because Jesus said, go love people, and when you love people, you're loving me? Who's going to just do that tomorrow? Because it's the second 150 years tomorrow, and the people who wrote the story the last 150 years, they're not coming back to write it for us. By God's grace, we get to write this story. It's our turn. The, the story of the future of FCC, we get to write it. You know, speaking of the future, I do need to tell you one more thing about the story of the church. One more thing. I, I, I should have probably mentioned it earlier. You, you would like to know this about the story of the church. The story of the church is a story of victory. Now, I've got to tell you that because it doesn't always look like it. If you were to study church history, you could see plenty of times where the people of the church of that day might have thought that the story of the church was a story of defeat. It looked like it. It even does in retrospect. And maybe some of you wonder of that today. Is the story of the church today, could it be, maybe you agree, okay, yes, it's a story of missionaries and servants and disciples and worshipers, but you wonder, could it be a story of defeat? And I just get to tell you the good news, heaven forbid. The story of the church 
is a story of victory. Jesus was chatting with his disciples one time, asking them who people said he was. And after they talked a little bit, he turned to them and said, well, who do you say I am? And Peter replied, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my Father in heaven. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. One of my favorite things about being part of the story of the church is that the story of the church is unstoppable. There is no enemy stronger than a church empowered by God's Spirit. There is no enemy more powerful than a church surrendered to Christ's command. There is no enemy who will outlast, outlove, or defeat a church that has surrendered to the call of God in the world. Amen. I have a feeling, I have a feeling that at the 200th anniversary of this church, the odds of me being there are slim. I know that. And so I won't probably be the one who talks there. So I can't guarantee the exact details of the story they tell. But I know the outline. I know the summary of the story they'll tell at our 200th anniversary. I know that because I know this church is obedient to Jesus and to his command. So they'll tell a story of worshipers who loved God, of servants who loved their neighbor and their enemy. They'll tell a story of disciples who made disciples, who made disciples, who made disciples. And they'll tell a story of missionaries who never forgot that they were sent to the city of Johnson City to advance the gospel and proclaim the name of Jesus to their neighbors and neighborhoods and schools and town and region of the world. That's the story they're going to tell because we're going to be obedient to Jesus. And when they tell that story, I also know it will be a story of victory because our God is faithful. And he has promised victory for his church. Because our hope, our only hope, just like Peter's, is in Jesus. Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is our Lord, and he is our Savior. Why don't you stand right now? We're going to sing and give glory to this God. If you believe that confession of faith, you are part of the unstoppable church of God. He is our Lord and he is our Savior. Amen and amen and amen.